Hey everyone, welcome to Being Experiential Podcasting. I'm Bethany Evans and I'm here with Erin Pruitt, my co-host. And today we have Stephanie McBride back. She is a nurse practitioner we had on a few weeks, a couple weeks ago. And the conversation was so amazing that we needed a part two. So here we are with part two, all (laughs) things women's health with Stephanie. Thanks for coming back. No worries. Glad to be here. It was so funny because when we were recording the first time, we're like, uh, we only got through half the questions. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do the second half and yeah. we're going to kick it off we go. with menopause questions. Okay. okay. First question, Stephanie, how does a woman know if she's in premenopause? Um, and if she needs support to know who would she go to, to figure it out? So, So perimenopause is more um, symptoms, right? So it's when, you know, patients will present to us and they'll tell us, you know, suddenly they're not sleeping well, um, or they've noticed, you know, um, an, you know, like a, a weight gain, or they're having intermittent hot flashes. Um, It's a very, um, you have to really be a good detective um, because you need to make sure that there's not another process going on, you know, something else that we're overlooking, you know, vitamin D deficiency or, you know, stress, anxiety, other issues that could um, cause similar symptoms. Um, And, you know, any OBGYN or, you know, women's health MP or um, midwife would be a good person to contact. Um, It's something that, you know, it's probably good to track your symptoms in relation to your cycle, um, if you're continuing to have periods. Um, And it's also important that if you start skipping periods that you're, you're tracking because you, the definition of menopause is once you've skipped, basically, you've not had a period for one year. And once a woman hits that point in her life, any bleeding after that one year mark is then considered abnormal. And for us as providers, it could be an early sign of um, different types of cancer. So we want to make sure that we get you back in and lay eyes on you. So, and is there um, like an age, an age range that um, it usually starts? So everybody's real different. Um, some women will have um, mild symptoms in their late thirties, early forties. Um, that would be slightly abnormal depending on, you know, um, if the, if that person had been diagnosed with like premature ovarian failure or, um, had fertility issues that could be, um, more likely the case. Um, but most of us transition through this perimenopause thing, um, somewhere between, I would say, you know, 45 to 50, um, 52 is the average age of menopause. Um, but it does, I mean, these changes can take up to 10 years to really kind of figure out which way they're going to go. That's crazy. That makes sense. That's crazy to me just to think about like, yeah, yeah. 10-year period for that damn long. The transition takes that long, you know, like, right. That's crazy. For you to figure out what your new normal is, right? Like mood or your sleep, you know, I think it's interesting because in a woman's, you know, lifespan, you know, we're typically well rested, you know, um, in your teens and, you know, you sleep all day and you're up all night and then you become a new mom and you're exhausted and you're up all night because you're, you know, nursing or the baby's awake and you need to feed. 
And then we kind of get some of that time back in your late thirties, early forties. And then you transition into this perimenopause and menopause where sleep really becomes like one of the biggest complaints um, that Mm. I hear about in clinic. Women just can't Mm. sleep. So that's good to know. Well, I'm 45. So how's your sleep? How's your sleep? So far so good. But is is it, you know, is there any heredity, like anything that was, has been investigated, like you follow your mother or, you know, like hair Mm. loss or something. Is there something, assuming that's real. I think it is. Um, So not, I think, I think women, so typically what I can tell you clinically is women who do a a great job of self-care, women who exercise routinely, they maintain a, a good normal BMI, they, they have a healthy diet. Um, they typically will sail through the perimenopause and menopause. Um, women that are um, overweight, not exercising, um, a lot of mood fluctuations, a lot of hot flashes. Um, and it's and this isn't true for everybody. Um, there are always outliers to any clinical situation, but typically in my experience, that's what I've seen. So if you're getting that time back because your kids are getting older and you find yourself with, you know, an additional 30 minutes a day, make the most of it and go for a walk and, you know, try to get yourself more physically active. So, yeah, we talked a little bit about that on part one, like maintaining a normal weight. Yeah. Um, it, it is very important during menopause. So. What about should women keep track of their hormone levels? Like if you're looking at perimenopause or menopause and if so, are there alternatives? There's, I know there's oral, I've heard a topical, um, mm-hmm. curious your thoughts and experience. So, yeah. So hormone levels, um, we can usually, we, to concretely diagnose somebody, um, you know, if, so for example, if you have somebody who says, well, I, I didn't track when the last time my period was, or I think it's been over a year and now they're having a period again and they come back in and we want to know, is this person really uh, menopausal? There are labs that we can draw to determine that. Um, now, what I know to be true about testing your, like your estrogen levels or testing your hormone levels is that they're kind of fleeting numbers. Meaning that if I, if you woke up first thing in the morning and we did your labs, the numbers would say, you know, A. And then if we tested you again at 2 PM, they would tell me something different. And then if I tested you again at 10 o'clock that night, they would look different again. So again, it kind of goes back to what is the, what are you feeling like? Like what, you know, what are your complaints or what are things that are different for you? Does that make sense? Those symptoms that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And if someone wanted to use like um, supplementary, like, is there. So I was going to ask because our, our hormones fluctuate naturally so much, like you were just saying, like, that's just a natural process, even if we're not in perimenopause or menopause, like what, what can we do to maybe stay balanced? Because it seems like there's almost like, it'd be like chasing, chasing a ghost. Like (laughs) you're on a roller coaster, you're just in for the ride. Yeah. It's kind of like, just buckle up. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of times what's happened is your physical symptoms, um, meaning like your a lot of women will have um, really irregular bleeding once they start into perimenopause. So they'll have, you know, um, a period every two weeks um, and then they'll skip a month or two or they'll have a 10 day long period that's really heavy. And then afterward they feel exhausted. Their heart is beating really fast. Um, you know, so sometimes their physical symptoms will dictate what the management is with the hormones. Um, mm. A lot of times what we'll do is we will use um, different intrauterine devices to help manage those patients. Like the Mirena IUD is spectacular for women that have irregular bleeding or heavy vaginal bleeding. Um, and that's just progesterone. So it's going to thin the lining of the uterus and it does kind of help. It, it helps some women kind of stabilize emotionally, if you will. Um, like it does help them kind of balance out their hormones. Um, and then other times what we'll do is if you're having those abnormal bleeding issues, we will start you on like a low dose um, or, you know, the lowest dose that works for you um, of a birth control. Um, and that does help balance some women out. So now there are, you know, if you're, if it's, if there's not a physical symptom that we need to treat, but you're having, you know, like these somatic complaints or these other types of symptoms, there are some, you know, over the counter type, um, remedies that we do recommend. Um, you know, black cohosh has been, um, known to help with like, um, hot flashes. Um, there's um, a supplement called Estrovin that contains black cohosh. And some of my patients have had good luck with that. Um, some of it's just trial and error. What's black cohosh? Is it like a, like an herb or a, a... Yeah, it's a, it's a homeopathic remedy. Mm -hmm. So, and some women, you know, you, you always start with the you know, the dosing on there and then other women will, you know, kind of tiptoe into it and find um, a like a regimen that works for them. So, yeah. yeah, there's definitely no one size fits all for us women. It's right. like all so different. Right. Right. And that's where it's hard. I mean, and it's yeah. really, you know, I've always said that, you know, um, quantity of life is, you know, maybe I guess, is it as important as your quality of life? Right. Like if you're, you know, having hot flashes and, you know, you're miserable, you're sweating through your clothes at work, or you're afraid to get out there and, you know, teach, you know, go to a conference and speak because you're afraid you're going to have a hot flash and sweat through your clothes in front of everybody. Mm. Um, or you're going to bleed through your clothing. You know, I've had patients that have had that happen too. So yeah, um, it's a lot to manage. My mom has a great story when she was going through menopause, she was in this we were all actually in this leadership program and she was at this woman's house and sitting on, she's like, Aaron, this was like a nice house. Everything was white. And oh God. her period, she like, she thought, Ooh, I'm heading towards menopause. I think it was like six months. And what was weird is for her, and which I relate to is my period gives like, I get a hint, like you get a little bit of shedding, but not very right. much for me. Well, she was like, in menopause, this shit would just like drop. Just like gush walk. out. <laughs> and she bled all yeah. over the chair. Oh, and she no. like said she had to lift the chair and kind of scoot oh, it backwards because she didn't want to see like, because oh. they're having this discussion with this group and like, so that oh. it would look like a massacre happen. How sad. I know. This is the shit that I don't like about. Yeah. Being yeah. Female. Yeah. 
Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, we don't, we don't talk about it a lot, you know, like I think a lot of times we assume that it's normal and we talk to, you know, maybe a friend or like, you know, mm-hmm. um, a, a, your mom, right. And, oh yeah, yeah. heavy vaginal bleeding. And, but there are things we can do to get you some sort of quality of life back. You don't have to hide out at the house because you don't want to leave in case your period starts. Yeah. So. Right. I think that that's the yeah. biggest, biggest point is like, we don't talk about it. And it's also then it's like, we have, we are conditioned to be ashamed of it right instead of your mom like I don't know yeah, yeah. And of course like who wouldn't be embarrassed but you could at least like possibly feel supported and that like people would it was it a group of women or was it more men there too it was a mix okay was a, but I mean yeah just like women. feeling like we're not going to be supported if we're like oh my god you guys like I'm you know like that people won't help us and they're just going to shame us and make us feel bad right Right. Well, and men, like they don't know the half of it, right? Like they don't know, you know, that we're trying to manage this crazy heavy flow with a diva cup right. and a super, you know, like a super pad and, you know, sleeping with a diaper on, right? Like, I know. know this. It's so, so uncomfortable, yeah. I know. Yeah. All right. So we got questions. I think we got a handful pretty <laughs> much asking about the same thing, which is, um, our listeners are saying they feel that menopause, premenopause, affects their sex drive um is that proven if so why and what the hell can they do about it (laughs) so um okay so we talked a little bit in part one about like men being like a light switch you know like you look at them and you flip them on and it's go time right Mm -hmm. and we know that women just we take a little bit longer to get going Um, So there is always that piece, but then if you add in, you know, um, exhaustion again, because you're not sleeping well, right. Um, Or if you're menopausal and you have vaginal dryness, right. That makes sex very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and the tissue can break down and you can have, you know, fissures or cracks in the perineum, like, and that's horribly painful. Um, And that's just lack of estrogen, that normal biological change that happens as we age. Um, so I, I think there is definitely some merit to, um, it changing, um, a sex, like a woman's sex drive. Um, but I think there's also things that can be done. And we talked about this a little bit more in part one, um, you know, with your partner and having those honest conversations and again, managing those physical symptoms, right? Cause if you're bleeding three weeks out of the month, when are you going to feel, you know, like you have enough yeah. energy to have great sex, you know? Yeah. So yeah. managing those physical yeah. symptoms. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, um, there's a lot of, um, controversy about, um, you know, adding, um, testosterone supplements. Um, I, I personally, um, again, I kind of believe in quality of life versus quantity, right? Like I don't necessarily need to live to be 112 if I can have, you know, whatever, 75 great years and enjoy my life and, you know, be happily married. Um, And so it's like the testosterone pellet thing or the testosterone cream, um, you know, a lot of times I think there's such a bad stigma with it. It's similar to marijuana, right? Cannabis. Um, it has such a negative connotation, but I do think there is some merit. Um, one of the studies I read recently was there's a lot of research going on in the way of, um, testosterone actually being beneficial at prevention of breast cancer. 
Um, you know, and there was a study back in the 70s where they took a bunch of women who were basically very, very much menopausal, like 60 and older, and they pumped them full of estrogen and they wanted to see if they got rid of their, you know, hot flashes and their, their menopause symptoms. Well, sure. And then what ended up happening is a lot of those women ended up getting um, uterine cancer um, hmm. and different types of cancer. And the problem is, is when you have that high level of unopposed estrogen, um, that's what can happen. And it wouldn't necessarily, the other piece of this is no practitioner would offer any woman who is truly menopausal high doses of anything um, hormone wise. Mm. So you gotta, you gotta like kind of understand the research and know like where it's at and like understanding and talk to your provider about the benefits and the risks. Now, clearly if you have somebody who has like a strong family history of breast cancer um, or a personal history of breast cancer, um, giving them estrogen is probably not a good idea. So yeah. Random question. Oh, you go B. No, it was just interesting. I didn't realize that there was a correlation between estrogen and cancer. Like Mm -hmm. it sounds like too much estrogen equals cancer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you think about, so extra, extra fat tissue secretes estrogen, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another piece of like maintaining, you know, a nice, you know, healthy BMI. And, and I know that's easier said than done. I'm sitting here preaching to the choir. Like I, I totally get it. Um, but it's, it's definitely one of the things you can Google cancer and obesity and look at the risk, you know, mm-hmm. it's much higher. Yeah. So, and female cancers are no different. Yeah. Erin, did you have something? Yes, I did. What the hell is up with hit my forties and chin hair? where is that coming from and i know that i'm in good company because i've talked to many women my age and older and we're like yes what the fuck (laughs) Mm -hmm. well the good news is is maybe they're just on your chin some women will get them on their sideburns or their chin yeah they're like whiskers some women yes yes i've got pubic hair coming out of my chin like it's like Like I'm on it. Like like, I'm not obsessed over my life. Carl's like, what is this? And I have a five time mirror. And because I'm just like, I'm like, what the hell? I used to have one that would grow. Just one. Like my eyebrows are thinning, but my chin is thinning. (laughs) It's falling off and getting stuck to your chin. Yeah. I'm like, that's it. Yeah. Nurse Stephanie, why Um, am I getting... Yeah. Harry, harrier why it's am i harrier yeah. Mm. yeah damn hormones, hormones. man uh, <laughs> right so thinning hair on your head and then hair growing in places you didn't yeah. want it to grow Carl's got it so yeah it's just hormones what's that carl gets it in his she's ears. like his ears i know yeah that's weird too why do we get hair in our why do men get hair in their ears he's horrified we, by it and we don't i don't like, women know. don't get hair in their I, ears no, they get on the chin. Knock on wood. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah, or we get it on our chin. My mustache. I've noticed my mustache right? a little bit more these days. <laughs> That's funny. Is that an no, indication guess- that my hormone, I'm losing one or gaining something in I'm 45? Yeah, so typically it's a play on the estrogen. You know, as we age, our estrogen levels decline. And so, you know, it, it gives that, um, you end up being, I guess, 
I don't want to say like you have more of like the male hormones um like it's okay so typically in a woman over the lifespan right you we have you know higher levels of estrogen and we have some of the male hormones but as we age you know our male hormones kind of stay where they're at but our our estrogen levels decline and so then you can show these different um, you know, like you're talking about, you know, the whiskery hair growth, you know, like on the sideburns or the chin, um, you know, the, the, um, thinning of hair sometimes is related to that as well. So I have heard that um, that's, it yeah. wasn't asked by our listeners, but I've heard women say like my hair is thinning. It reminded them like, you know, when we were pregnant, we had thickening, thinning hair. I mean, yeah. I had like thicker hair pregnant yep. and then after Very giving similar. birth, like hair fell out. Like I was like, yeah. yep. yeah. and again, when you're pregnant, you know, you have those really high levels of estrogen. And then once that placenta detaches and you start to breastfeed, that estrogen falls off. And again, now those male hormones, you know, so it's, it, and that's why some women will experience the same vaginal dryness of like, like perimenopause or menopause while they're <clears throat> breastfeeding is because of those mm-hmm. lower estrogen levels. Does oh. postpartum depression have a link to like all of the hormonal fluctuations? Like, sure, yeah, I would I, definitely it, like you know. We'll, yeah, it makes sense, right? Like when you when you're thinking about it, because when you have those really and and they're high amounts of hormones and that fluctuation, all of that is triggered immediately postpartum when that placenta detaches your, your, um, body is basically sent the message to, okay, stop everything else and start creating breast milk so that we can feed this offspring Right, and everything else kind of falls to the wayside. And so that's where, you know, we used to use the term, the baby blues, you know, like Mm -hmm. somewhere between a week to two weeks postpartum, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you're crying and weepy. Um, I had terrible hot flashes after my third baby. Um, and I was like, what is, and it's just hormones. So it's a, I don't know if that's an indication of things to come for me, but Lord have mercy. Um, (laughs) so yeah, it was like, I couldn't keep clothes on. My husband was like, okay, like the kid time is over. I'm like, well, it's hot in here. So yeah, (laughs) it's just all hormonal. Yeah. All right. So we have questions. So if you have recommendations for vitamins that might like we had a listener ask like, okay, so in your thirties, 20, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, is there particular vitamins a might be needed or you have a drop away um, kind of like, Oh, I would increase that. Like I think of calcium, right? Like as you get older, bone, bone density, but I'm, you know, I don't know if that's still a thing. Um, do you have any recommended vitamins yeah. or supplements for the ages? I think Stephanie. Pause. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you, they would tell you, I always talk about vitamin D. Oh, are we there? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're now there. We, are. we caught up. You, you paused for a second. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. So my internet is unstable. Um, okay. So vitamin D is, 
Um, so they, okay. So I get really excited about vitamin D. So I used to live in Alaska and, um, everybody knows that, you know, Alaska, there's a lot of darkness during the winter months and has, um, the highest suicide rate in the nation. Mm. Um, but there's also a lot of amazing studies that come out of the Arctic and, um, Alaska. So they've studied vitamin D levels in relation to different types of cancers and um, different types of hormones. And there's some, there is some push in the medical community to basically treat vitamin D more like a hormone because of the way it changes the way your brain uses um, serotonin in like the way your brain utilizes those hormones like serotonin. Um, and low vitamin D is a very powerful thing. You will feel like absolute garbage when your vitamin D levels are low. Um, and it could be like difficulty sleeping, or it could be sleeping all the time and waking up and feeling like you never went to sleep. Um, Mm. it could be increased thoughts of anxiety, increased depression. You can have like palpitations. You could, um, I'm trying to think just no energy, constantly feeling run down. Um, and I think the majority of the country, not just women, um, are deficient in vitamin D our levels right now. Um, they recommend us being over 40 as women. Um, and I've seen patients where we're talking like they were in the thirteens and these patients were like, I just have like no get up and go. I just feel run down. I don't want to do anything. Um, and really getting them back on track with vitamin D and vitamin D takes a long time to build back up in your system. So you really have to be diligent with it. Um, one thing that would be due diligence to say is that, vitamin D is potentially a vitamin that you could end up having too much on because it's um, not water soluble, Mm. but your body doesn't Mm. absorb all of it. So if you're somebody who is, you know, say you're cruising around at 25 and you're having some of those symptoms, um, definitely start taking some vitamin D and watch those levels. Um, There's no need to do vitamin D labs more frequently than every maybe three to six months because it takes so long to get the, the, to get the levels back up. Um, But I would recommend that being checked at every annual exam. And then is there a different type, sorry, sorry. is there a different type of like, um, supplement? Cause I, I've, cause I've looked into this, I was taking vitamin D, but like, or notice there's like, it's called different things, right? I don't know if there's like different dosages or different types to take depending. Um, I always, I always take the vitamin D3 and I take the 10,000, um, international units and in the winter time I'm pasty. So I don't absorb a lot of sun. I Uh tolerate it real well. So in the summertime, I'm, I'm out in the sun, but I'm not just out in the sun, right? Like I'm under shade or I'm in a, you know, under a canopy. Um, And so um, you got to make sure that like you're taking enough to increase your levels. Um, But again, you don't want to take too much. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's why it's important for you to have your lab checked. Yeah. And then what about like, what's the equivalent of like, so if you were to, if you are outside every single day and you're getting exposure to sun, uh, you don't mm-hmm. have to, t- you know, I mean, I guess it goes off how you feel, right. And that your symptoms, but, um, what's the equivalent, right. I guess, and- like if you didn't want to take a supplement and you just wanted to be like, I just want to, I'll go outside instead. What, how much yeah. time out so- would you have to spend outside? <laughs> Ooh. 
Boy, I don't even know. I, I really don't. I, I can't honestly tell you a time limit on that. I think the good place to start would be to consider like what your average outdoor exposure is just daily now yeah. and have your labs checked and see, okay. are you over that 40 or are you just under it? And if you're just under it, increasing that activity outdoors. Great. So, Cause I know sometimes for me, I, it's um, like, I can be outside for too long and I'm like, this, it, I feel like it's too much. And I, I don't know, like I, yeah, I, that, that is a thing for me. Like if I'm outside, the sun can be a lot, like I'll be there. And I'm yeah. like, you said, you can have an overexposure yeah. too. Like what happens then? Like what if like, yeah, I don't know. And I'm like, man get whiskers. I know. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. It'll just, it'll just shake them a little better. Yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll um, bleach I mean, them. Clearly I'm not, <laughs> right. Right. Bleach them. Um, so no, I mean, I'm not saying that anybody should just be, you know, in the sun without sunscreen and increase, oh, yeah. you know, dangerous exposure. I'm just saying like, no, you know, no. it, it would be good to take a walk and, you know, make sure that you are getting some outdoor activity if you're not going to supplement, you know, right. orally. So, and different things will interfere with the absorption of vitamin D as well. Um, mm. So I am a coffee and unsweet tea drinker. Um, and those are probably two of the worst things um, as far as affecting the absorption of vitamin D. So making sure that you take it at night a long ways away from when you had coffee or tea. So, okay. Let's go to um, um, other supplements. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. And that's for, and you would recommend that's be, that all ages. Vitamin D. Vitamin yeah. D. Yeah. I give my kids vitamin D, like vitamin D3. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially when we lived in Alaska, um, little ones, they started checking their lab values right away. Um, and we used to give them a little drops. Um, yeah. Vitamin D is very important. And I think that's <clears throat> in a decade from now, we're going to sit back and be like, man, I knew there was more to it. Um, it played role in our immediate plays a big role in our mental health. I mean, if you think about it, it makes total sense. Like if you're inside in the winter, right. And it's cold outside, nobody wants to be outdoors and you're not getting any of that exposure in the sun on your skin, you know, it's easy to fall into that trap to where, well, I'm just going to lay here in front of the TV. And then you have that lethargy and that lack of get up and go. So, yeah. Yeah. I keep forgetting my, you guys are in Southern California. So it's yeah. probably a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. You guys hit 60 and everybody panics, but yeah, you know, we have Uggs on. Oh, yeah. 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 64 yeah. is cold for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm loving it, but I do notice I'm like, ooh, sweater, Uggs. And There's Carl a slight like, chill. Yeah. There's a slight chill. I need you're a sweater. Right. He's like, you're an idiot. Right. I love you, but right. you're an idiot. You're a spoiled brat. Yeah. Totally. That's funny. Yeah. Any other um, um, supplements or vitamins you'd recommend? Um, so I will tell you what's in my drawer right now. I do take just a women's daily vitamin. I try to take that at night before bed. Um, and then I have my vitamin D, like I mentioned, and I also take a magnesium supplement. Um, magnesium helps. Um, I, I initially started taking it because I have terrible migraines, um, headaches. Um, and it was one of the recommendations. Um, and then as I read more into it, um, I, again, kind of like a hormone regulator, like all of the benefits of taking it. So, 
Um, there's a ton of different types of magnesium. Some women will take magnesium to help them go to the bathroom. <laughs> like hmm. if you're having constipation, <laughs> um, but there's other magnesiums that do help with um, like headache mitigation and women that crave a lot of chocolate too um, could have some type of magnesium deficiency. So, okay. Um, and do you recommend the taking the supplements that... at night? Sorry. Um, it's up to you. I think it's whenever you're going to be, um, consistent okay. um, for me, it's at night, right before I lay down. I wasn't sure if there was like, yeah. a, like you, you, you know, before I put my, sorry, we keep talking over before each other. I put my really cute... <laughs> sorry. I think I have a delay on my end. Sorry. Yeah. What do you put on that's your cute what, Stephanie? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, so my husband knows, so my husband knows that there's no shot when I pull out my night guard for my teeth because I'm um, a grinder. So like when he hears the little box rattle, he just knows like just roll over and go to sleep. So. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Um, best treatments for fibroids? Maybe you, you have to starve them. Yeah, what so are fibroids? fibroids? So fibroids are, how do I explain this in a real easy way? Um, so fibroids are basically tissue. Um, they're like bands of tissue that develop within the uterus. Um, so on the lining of the uterus or in the muscles of the uterus or on the outer cavity of the uterus. So there's different types of fibroids. Um, but they're essentially fed, if you will, by estrogen. So again, women that have higher levels of estrogen, um, women that are overweight or more prone to them, um, they're a big culprit for this perimenopausal abnormal bleeding that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we will identify that there is a fibroid in there contributing to some of that wonky bleeding. Um, and these, I believe, are familial. So like if, you know, your big sister had them and your, you know, your mom had them, there's a better possibility that you could have them. Um, they can be surgically removed, but you can also essentially starve the fibroid um, by um, adding in some progesterone. Um, and it won't get rid of them completely, but it will hopefully shrink them down and manage the bleeding. So... All right. And fibroids can be, so it's fair to, I mean, it's probably of value to mention that women can have fibroids during their childbearing years as well. Um, large fibroids can be um, a cause of infertility as well. So if you're mm. having kind of abnormal bleeding outside of your regular seven to 10 day cycle, that's something that you should get checked out. Hmm. Good to know. Okay. All right. Question. I know the answer is yes, because you brought it up, BMI. Does BMI really matter? If um, Is it outdated or still key to knowing overall health? And how? what's the best measurement of BMI? This is only the first part. I have a whole another like, three questions. After also, for, for those who don't know what BMI is, what is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so BMI is your body mass index. It's a compilation of your height and a range of where, what is considered a normal weight for you. Um, and then it trans it transitions into overweight and then obese. 
um, and really, I think it does. Wait, okay, so to some people, depending on their bone density, will always fall outside of normal BMIs. Um, meaning, like if you have a woman who um, is, you know, I, let's. I'm trying to think of a good example. Somebody who, um, somebody who does a lot of either cardio activity or somebody who is a weightlifter, something like that. Like those women have a, um, a greater bone density um, and their BMI might be skewed a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. They may show up on a chart um, that they're overweight when in a one size fits all type situation. Um, one of the best indicators of your overall health is your abdominal circumference, especially for us women, um, having a, you know, a larger abdominal circumference is directly related to your heart health. Um, so for those of us who um, aren't super diligent about exercising, um, that's a good measurement, you know, because if you look at that scale, I don't know how much you guys have actually looked at a BMI chart. It can be kind of depressing. Mm. <laughs> you, you're like, Oh, here's where I'm at. And here's where I should be. And you're like, I'm never going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, so do, you know, taking on things, lifestyle choices, you know, it might be, you know, a, like a lower carb diet, um, with a, a focus on more protein and fiber for women, um, and then combining that with additional aerobic exercise to decrease that waist circumference. Mm. So, um, and is the waist like at the belly button or is it a particular measurement? Yeah, right above in the military, we always use the term, the iliac crest. So the very top of your hip bones, kind of your love handles area. Okay. So for some people that would go right across your belly button. Yeah. Are you looking for yours, Bethany? I am. I'm feeling it. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was doing the same thing, but you were like really looking and I was trying to secretly just yeah. figure oh, it I out. I don't care. I'm trying to yeah. figure it out. <laughs> I'm learning so much. <laughs> All right. So here's a question that was um, kind of uh, tagged on to the series of questions is, so you have your body mass, right? Like, but does mental health or management, like mindfulness practices, self-care. Like, I'm going to just use me as an example, even though I wasn't the one that wrote this question, but I know going to my doctor, it was, it's interesting. She'll be like, yes, you're overweight. And let's look at that. And then I, but I noticed, I was like, well, what about, like, there wasn't any, there was definitely the overweight, but there wasn't any other indicators um, of where it was having a negative impact, but there was no questions about, or there was very little questions about mental health or the mindfulness practice, all the things that I would do. To, like, it was almost like, yeah, we don't really care about that. Like, we just got to look at how big you are. And if you have too much fat, you're kind of like, worry, worry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But then I feel like when I worked with clients and this is more on an intuitive level, I'm not a medical professional, but might have a really leaner body, right? They're, they're in BMI killing it. However, you could feel the anxiety or the stress like off of them. And I'm thinking, is there, is their life expectancy longer than mine given they have less fat, but I have better life practices in the world of mental health? 
So, you know, like let's say okay. we, we work out equally, right? Sure. All things, yeah, all things yeah. equal. And I do appreciate what you're saying. And here's my, here's my initial like reaction to that. I can't quantify your mental health practices, right? I can't mm. like my definition personally of anxiety or depression is going to be very different than the next person, right? So, or how we, how we recover from feeling that way, right? Our, our ability to, um, our ability to snap out of it, right? Um, but your BMI, I can put you on a scale and I see a number and I have a chart to look at, right? Mm -hmm. So as a practitioner, mm -hmm. that's a very easy thing for me to talk to you about. So it's kind of low hanging fruit. And it is important in the sense that for all the things we just talked about, your heart health and you know, women um, have a really high um, rate of um, heart attacks as we age. Um, so it is important, but I would, I would agree that what you're saying you know, mental health and stress management are equally important, especially when you're talking about heart attacks, right? Like if yeah. you could be, yeah. you could be the skinniest, most in shape person, but if you're not managing your stress, well, your cortisol levels are probably through the roof and your heart probably isn't any healthier than the person who's sitting on the couch, eating Doritos, watching, you know, Netflix. Right. right. So it's, it's this combination of things. And I think, I think women, we are quick. How do I say it? Um, there are, we are quick to put ourselves on the back burner. I talked mm -hmm. about that a little bit the last, yeah. in the last session that we talked about. Um, and so I think one of the things that as, as you're breaking out of this and you're trying to get back into a new routine or trying to get yourself to a, a more normal weight, um, pay attention to how you're feeling those endorphins that we get naturally after some good exercise. And, you know, it could be just a brisk walk through the neighborhood with the dog, right. In the sunshine. Um, if you're not doing anything prior to doing that, that's something, and there is some value added for that. Um, and that does help with stress management, being in nature, like connecting, you know, like being barefoot in your backyard, right? Like there is definite mm -hmm. value to these things. Um, but I would say that as a practitioner, we don't get a ton of training um, in, you know, um, mental health. Um, it's kind of like nutrition. Um, it's one of those things that we just kind of skim over. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now yeah. you're, you know, clearly if you're in the mental health field, you've, you've gotten a lot of training in that. But as a general practitioner or, you know, you coming in to see me for pap smears, I may ask you, you know, are you feeling suicidal? Do you have any thoughts of hurting yourself or anybody else? How many times have you been asked that? Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, but again, I think it's because it's hard to quantify. So. Yeah. So if anyone's hearing some crazy noises, we don't know what it is other than we think aliens might be possessing one of our microphones. Yeah. Uh, just Stephanie oh, doesn't no. know that Bethany and I can give talk to each other with like blinks and eye raises. <laughs> and we know exactly we've been doing this long enough. So Stephanie's talking and we're doing these like, mm, mm, mm. we can hear this like feedback and we're like, oh God, like oh. It our brain like goes monster growl. It sounds like I a demon. Like at one point, it sounded like oh, a no. demon, like yeah. repeat, repeating what some somebody had said. Oh, and I was that'll like, be our oh, next my God. demons. Yeah. And I don't know what's the other scary thing. Um, so we acknowledge it and we apologize if it's distracting. Hopefully yeah. it's not. <ay> <laughs> okay. So we have a series of birth control questions. Okay. First one. 
Can you give us a high level review on the different birth controls and what could be people should, uh, ladies should consider that's best for what? Um, yes. Do we want to start oldest to youngest, youngest to oldest, like meaning my teens to menopause yeah. or menopause yeah, let's start to young. teens? Yeah. Start young. Okay. So with our, okay. So with teens, one of the things that we would want to consider, um, is basically how reliable, um, is this person going to be taking a pill, right? Every day, how disciplined is this person going to be, or is this going to be another thing that, you know, mom has to track and we're going to miss three or four days and it's not going to be effective for anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will say that no two 16 year olds are equally, you know, mature. Um, I've had 16 year olds who were wanting to have an IUD because they wanted absolutely zero chance of, you know, accidentally getting pregnant and they were very mature. We talked about the procedure. We talked about, you know, the, the risks, the benefits of all of it. And they did fine. Um, but then I have, you know, other, you know, not even that, I guess, older, I can think of patients who weren't ready for something, you know, that invasive. Mm -hmm. um, and at 16, having an IUD placed is invasive, because you've never, you've probably not even had a pap smear, you shouldn't have had a pap smear at 16. So maybe a pelvic exam, but now you're having a speculum exam and having an IUD placed. So it's a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but there are some teens that that is what they'd like. Um, we have contraceptive rings that are nice. Um, so it's inserted the Nuva ring is a great one. There's a new one out that lasts even longer. Um, they're inserted just like a tampon. You leave them in for three to four weeks when you're ready to have your, in that time period, when it's time to have your period, you remove it just like a tampon. You have your period and you put a new one in. Um, what else? Mm -hmm. Next plan. Um, this is the implant that goes just under the skin. Um, and it lives in the inner aspect of your elbow here, like in your um, upper arm. Um, that one's um, progesterone only. Um, so a lot of times women will have um, some kind of weird bleeding after we place it. But once they get through that, a lot of times they won't have periods. And so that's one of the perks of getting that. Teens do, do pretty well with that. Um, it's probably less painful than a piercing. <laughs> Cause we actually numb the area. So, um, yeah, and then awful. getting it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, they do well, they do well. So, and then sometimes, you know, they do great on like a really low dose pill. So, um, I would say condoms are always a good idea, but the reliability there is, you know, it's difficult to manage. Right. No. Um, yeah. In my 30 somethings, um, I think at that point, either you're used to taking a pill or typically you have something more long-term like an IUD. Um, Paragard IUD is another good one. That is an IUD that's copper only um, and it's good for about 10 years. Um, and you can remove it at any time. It, just because we put it in doesn't mean you, can, you, you can't take it out and have a baby um, unless you're Britney Spears, I guess, right? But, <laughs> oh, man. I went there, that poor woman. So, I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and what provider put that in? Um, I'd like to have a conversation yeah, against it her seems will. Like illegal. Yes. Yeah. It, the whole it really thing does. seems like the whole, her whole life seems illegal. <laughs> like the way right. that she's been treated, it's 
crazy. In 2021, right? Yeah. yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And by the time she gets all this mess straightened out, she'll be 40 and then, you know, have to go through, you know, having a baby and the risk that comes with being 40 and having a baby. So, yeah. um, I mean, but anyway. goodness, she does have kids already, you know, and at least she had that experience, yeah. you know, like, I mean, just yeah. saying like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. <sighs> um, but all that to point to the fact that, you know, IUDs can be, they are, they are somewhat more invasive um, because we do have to do a pelvic exam. Um, but typically patients do really well with the insertions. The removal is a walk in the park. Um, you know, we, um, I don't know, I've never had a bad outcome with an IUD. Um, there's different IUDs that I would recommend for different age groups. Um, I love Kylena. The Kylena is a, it's a five-year um, option and it's a lower dose than the Mirena. I always explain it to patients like Kylena is the little sister and Mirena is the big sister. So if you were a patient that had, you know, that heavy abnormal bleeding of perimenopause, I would give you, I would suggest a Mirena to you um, to get that under control. So, and I think it's important to mention that um, as you um, get older, don't assume that you can't get pregnant just because you're skipping periods because you very much can get pregnant until we can confirm your menopausal. So up until that point where you went without a period for a year, you should be um, actively using some type of birth control if your goal is to not get pregnant. Um, I've had a, there's no way this could be happening to me at 47 conversation more than once. So Dang. Sounds like hell. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, that's an unwanted yeah. pregnancy usually is very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. For everybody, right? Yeah. 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 Are you ready for my next question? Sure. Okay. Did we cover that? I kind of, I mean, I didn't want to go into too much detail, but I love the IUDs. I think they're a great option. They give you many years of coverage. They have a very low side effect profile. Um, the counter to that is they are a little bit more invasive, but yeah, um, yeah. we have it's, lots of options. It's kind of knowing what you're comfortable with. That's, I think it's helpful because I think just knowing the options and being aware of your age and your your lifestyle. Okay. One listener asked us this, how frequent is it women get their periods on their second week of taking the pill? Also on the week of the placebo. I, that person probably needs to be seen and talk to their provider about having that breakthrough bleeding in that second week. Um, it's a, it's a basically whatever hormone, whatever amount of hormone is in that pill isn't enough to keep her period at bay for the normal amount of time. Mm -hmm. And that's why she's having that breakthrough ble bleeding on the second week. So you should only, when you're on the pill, your cycle should be very, very like very concise, like, you know, every whatever, 28 days for four or five days, and then a day of spotting and you're back into your next pill pack. So that's something that I would address with her provider. All right. Good to know. Cause I was like, I don't know. Like I was like barely understanding the question. It sounds okay. like a horrible inconvenience. And she's probably been using the same pill since she was 16 and it's just what she's used and now suddenly she's dealing with this thinking that it's just her body, but it's really the pill that okay. she's on. She needs something different. So I have a question. Is there more research? This is my question on men's health and women's health. And a sub question is, 
Um, has birth control been more researched or less or similar to like Viagra to erectile dysfunction? Um, so my feminist side wants to be like, well, of course, right? <laughs> That's what I was like, that um, my feminist is asking. Yeah. Yes. Well, because I mean, so there's, um, how do I say? Okay. So like you can go online and get a tab of Viagra for like 250, like, right. Like it's very cheap. It's easy to get. Um, and we still kind of have to go through a lot of hoops to get access to birth control, right? Like affordable birth control. Not, mm -hmm. not everybody has great insurance. Um, so I think it's fair to say that yes. And I, I think that there is, a lot of room in the way of men's health and the options for different birth controls as well, right? So one extreme would be like, why couldn't, you know, if you're going to circumcise a brand new baby, right? For just cosmetic reasons, right? Not mm -hmm. a big, not a lot of medical indication to circumcise a little boy anymore, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you're willing to do that, why not give your, you know, 15 year old a vasectomy that's easily reversible in an outpatient procedure, right? When they're mm -hmm. 26 and they're married and ready to have kids. I mean, but you put, I think society puts all of this back on women to manage. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that's where it's been very difficult. And I think, um, I think that there's some studies that would indicate that a lot of this was poorly studied. Um, I think they're better now. Um, but like I was mentioning that study that was done back in the seventies, um, that something like that would, would have never flown ethically today in 2020. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So heart attacks are the number one death of women in the U S what signs do we look for when we think we might be having one? Um, and what are preventative measures we can take? So um, preventative measures, we kind of talked about, you know, maintaining um, a normal BMI. Smoking is a big part of this. Um, it causes, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It causes the vasculature to harden. You also want to keep track of your cholesterol levels, um, making sure that your triglycerides aren't too high. Um, so just your annual blood work. Um, and then the signs of this, um, a lot of times they're a little bit different. Women will report um, a lot of shoulder pain um, or pain in their, like in their scapula region. Um, and then other times it's very obvious. It's like that they, they'll tell us it feels like an elephant is sitting on their chest and they can't mm. catch their breath. So. I remember when Rosie O'Donnell had, she talked about having a heart attack and hers was shoulder and then going down her arm mm -hmm. um, was what she was feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, oh, I slept on it wrong. Or, you know, I, I think I did something to it. It's bothering me, but like when it's radiating, you know, and it's not normal or it's not getting better as the day, as your day wears on, like you need to slow down and be like, okay, could this be something worse? Right. So, but yeah. Okay. Any sleeps, any sleeps, any tips on sleep on getting better quality, um, or quantity of sleep? Um, 
don't look at your phone right before you're supposed to go to bed, right? We all do it at the end of the night, you know, you're slowing down and you finally have a chance to check your emails. Mm -hmm. Um, But you need to have like a sleep routine, right? Like think, treat yourself as a, as a grown woman, treat yourself as good as you did your six month old baby, right? Like (laughs) you, you got them in the tub, you, you know, nice warm bath, you washed their hair, you got them out, you dried them off, you put their, you know, lotion on, gave them a fresh diaper, some fresh PJs. And, you know, you have this routine. And as a woman, I think, and this is, you know, sleep hygiene for men and women is very similar. You just need to have kind of a process you go through that's like habitual so that your body and your mind start to think, okay, we're getting ready to slow down for the day, you know, like getting in that zone, that mode of getting ready for bed. Um, So things like, you know, watching, watching TV in your bed, um, looking at your phone in bed, those things aren't healthy. Well, um, I know we always tell patients that your bed should be used for sleeping and sex. So do those things in other areas of your house so that when, you know, you're physically in your bed, your body knows that it's time to actually sleep. So, and if you can't sleep, don't just lay there in bed, get up out of bed and then do something until you're, you know, sleepy or you're feeling like you could try to lay down again and then go do it again. Like go lay down, see if you fall asleep. Excuse me. Mm. Wonderful. That I like the sleep hygiene. That's my first time hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard of that before, B? No. No. Okay. I was no. like, I wouldn't be. I, think I, I need to implement a lot of those things yeah. <laughs> more. I mean, it's I do so it sometimes. It is, it, especially when you're like, oh well, uh, I'm gonna set my alarm on my phone, right? Like to to wake me up. It's it, it, yeah, and then you end up scrolling your phone. <laughs> before you go to bed without thinking yeah. about it I know you get lost people, in the TikTok yeah they'll put their phone on the other side of the room so it's not near their head and then Izzy set all my alarms for working out um on the days I work out mm-hmm. so I don't even have to set it it just nice. I mean it's a little annoying when you nice. decided not to work out or you're on vacation but you know you can fix it yeah all right <laughs> got two more questions what health issues do women tend to ignore the most and are there any fun stats on the difference between men and women oh, wait those are two really very different questions but well fun stats on what, what? Kind of, yeah what kind of stats what do you mean well let's see let's do the health uh what health issues do women tend to ignore and then i'll i'll okay. um, uh, she'll figure it out yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so health issues, I, so preventative care is a big part of, you know, like like us aging, right. Um, making sure that you're getting to your, um, practitioner, you know, once a year for your annual exam, you may not need a pap smear every year. Um, you should have a pelvic exam. Um, and then, um, making sure that, you know, if you're 40 and older or you have a person like a family history of breast cancer that you're getting the mammograms done regularly Um, and then as we age we add in um, what's called a DEXA scan so they can look at your bone health as well 
Um, I think that preventative maintenance really goes a long way. Um, and you should get those labs that we mentioned. Um, they should be looking at, you know, what do your cholesterol levels look like? What is your vitamin D level? Um, so you have a baseline, um, you know, if, if you come back with some sort of symptom or some complaint, then we know what you looked like when you didn't feel that way. So. Um, fun stats, like maybe like, what are women more likely to be healthier in? What are men, like what kills us differently? What helps us? I don't know. Those are what I was thinking. I don't know. I got the question. I don't know exactly what the person meant. <laughs> Uh, um, so men, I think, um, I think in general, men will put off going to the doctor longer than a woman will. Um, men just, you know, they'll, ah, it'll go away. It'll go away. And then it never goes away. And then if they came in six months ago, it would have been a better situation. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah, we talked about orgasms last time, how the difference in that. So, you know, men yeah. So for a man, um, for a, a male orgasm, it's like one focal point, right? Like it's, it's like a, um, centric, um, sensation, right? And for a woman, it is like a whole body euphoria. Um, we talked about it a little bit in the last segment about, you know, like, um, I think we were talking about, um, LG. Was it, is that where we were talking about it? Or am I thinking of another? Did we talk about like trans women and men last time? I don't think we talked a lot about it. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, because there's been, they've they've talked to different, they've talked to different um, like women who, um, you know, now identify as a man. And they've talked about how the orgasm changes once they go through all of their hormone therapies and their, um, if they elect to do the surgeries. And that's one of the stark differences is when men go from being identifying as a male to a female, they talked about how different the orgasm is because it's a whole body sensation versus the other way around a woman, you know, transitioning to being a man, then it becomes more focal. So really interesting. That is interesting. Okay. I have, I follow a lot of people on Instagram, a lot of women who are like educating about, um, women's health and like our vulvas and the clitoris. And a lot, I've heard, seen a lot of things that are like the clitoris was just discovered, like not too long ago, or it like was just put into medical textbooks. And I was curious if that was like true <laughs> or like us knowing, us knowing like the full, um, anatomy of the in, like the clitoris and, and also just like what it looks like on the inside. And like some people even saying it was like misrepresent misrepresented in medical textbooks Yeah. So totally not taking away from them and not discounting um, maybe the literature that they have. I've never um, heard or read that Mm -hmm. um, anywhere. It wouldn't, my, again, my feminist side wants to say it wouldn't surprise me Yeah, um, because again, it's not, you know, it's not a man's body, but right. um, Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I was just curious if you had known anything because they were like, they had pictures of like differences from you know, when this text anatomy textbook was published and then this one, and it was like a change, you know, there was changes in it. 
Wow. Yeah. Was it like a really, really old textbook, like from like the forties or the fifties or something like how I can't old? remember. I can't remember exactly the, yeah. but yeah, it was, um, I don't know. It's just interesting. There's, there's some people who are, yeah, like I said, I don't know, like I follow them and I find it interesting, but I'm not sure how accurate, you never know how accurate some stuff is or how yeah. it's portrayed can also be. So that's why I was curious <laughs> if that's real yeah. or not. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard that before. I'm interested now. That'll be, I'll have to look at that and see. Yeah. That's crazy. All right, final question. Gut health. Um, we're hearing a lot about gut health. Can you tell us any more as a fad? How do we get better gut health if it is not a fad and we should be tending to it? So I'll enter this question by caveating that I am in no way, shape or form a seasoned um, GI um, <laughs> practitioner. Okay. So I'm just giving you what I've, what I've read in different um, journals. Um, actually, I came across something the other day that kind of segues into this. Um, okay, so gut health, we know um, there's a lot of studies like as it relates to ADHD and um, ADD, um, and how the gut health of those children that, um, they're looking at in these studies, um, how it looks different than the gut health of a, of a child that doesn't have those same diagnoses. Um, as it relates back to maternity, um, I actually just read a, uh, study the other day where they, I think this was done in England, um, and I can't I can't quote the actual organization. Um, in a, in the U.S., we use ACOG, um, which is our governing body for GYN and OB. Um, and in Europe or in England, it's different. Um, so that organization is who I believe did the study. And what they found is that babies that are born via C-section do not have the same gut health because of the exposure they basically lack the exposure that a baby that's born vaginally gets as it transitions down through the vaginal canal and comes out um, over the perineum. So they've checked the gut, like the, the different bacteria that are available in the babies. And they're very different between a C-section baby and a vaginal birth baby. Mm -hmm. um, and they're thinking that this could be the reason why we have an increase in asthma rates and increase in different types of allergies because this, this early, so that travel through the vaginal canal and that exposure to the flora of the mother is what basically builds the baby's immune system. It's what like shocks it into starting to work, right? And so that gut health is um, affected when it's not born vaginally. Does that make sense? Did I explain that really well? Yeah, that's, that's fascinating to me. That's right. just like, you would so, never think that there's a correlation there. That's so weird. Right, right. Crazy. Um, and so now there is, they're actually studying what is called vaginal seeding. And so I'm going to be real honest. The first time I heard this, I was like, what in the world are we doing? So vaginal seeding is when you basically take um, vaginal secretions or vaginal discharge after childbirth and they wipe it all over the baby so that bacterial exposure on the skin of the baby is basically 
stimulating that immune response in the baby for the C-section babies, the same way it would in a vaginal delivery. So I think, I think we know very, very little, I think we're getting there. Um, But I definitely believe that there is a correlation between our guts and our brains, our ability to not have crippling anxiety and crippling depression. Um, Mm. I, I, I very much believe that. Yeah. So, and whether or not that, that starts at childbirth or not, I couldn't, I mean, I, of course I can't tell you yes or no. Um, but I do think it's very interesting that uh, very interesting that we're studying it beginning at childbirth. So, yeah, yeah, it's different. So, totally, you know, opening, opening a mom surgically and just removing a baby, um, you know, there is less exposure that way. So, yeah, hmm. it's crazy. Well, Nurse Stephanie, you were awesome. Thank you. We got through all the questions. So funny. I sent Stephanie the questions gathered and it was like, oh, it's just 13. But then there would be like two to six questions inside of each question. Yeah. Um, Thank you for. uh, Yeah. Thank you. Listeners questions and helping them kind of just, you know, begin the conversation for some validation, learning what to ask and look for. So super appreciate it. And for coming back. I know. Thank you so much for making the time. We really appreciate it. Yes. No problem. It's great to be here. All right. So if you want to follow our podcast, go to Instagram. Uh, Our podcast is being experiential pod. (laughs) Good job, Erin. Yes, it is. (laughs) Follow us there. All right. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye.